0: Well, it's certainly a delight to be with you here this morning once again to share and open the Word of God together. And again, it is a a privilege to be here. I'm filling big shoes. Uh, Those shoes were over at Bowmanville Baptist Church about a month ago, and we were certainly blessed as Pastor Jason brought us the Word and challenged us uh, to follow after Christ and to be righteous. So this morning, let's take our Bibles and, as you can see on the screen, turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and our text this morning will be verses 1 to 5. Listen to the inerrant word of God as Paul is superintended by the Holy Spirit to write these words. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified, just as it did also with you, and that we will be rescued from perverse and evil men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord concerning you that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. There ends the reading of God's word. Please join with me in prayer before we go to the word of God this morning. Heavenly Father, we again thank you for your word. And we thank you that you have given it to us so that we might know you. You have put it in human language with the expectation that we will be able to understand it. You have given us the Holy Spirit for us to help interpret it. And so this morning, I pray your Holy Spirit would teach us through your word this morning that we might hear the voice of God this morning. Protect your word, I pray. Use your word as you see fit in our hearts this morning, I pray in your name. Amen. Well we've talked about your pastor Jason and and you I know that you love him and you have come to appreciate him for his ministry here and the fact that he brings you the word of God. But you might also recognize that you have certain expectations from your pastor as well. You think there are certain responsibilities that he should fulfill. In fact, when he left seminary he was looking for a church who would take him in to fulfill the responsibilities and the needs of the church and so depending on our church background how long we've been a believer and our experiences we all come with a certain expectation that there are certain things that our pastor should do for us and so we we start to think and we say well you know what he needs to visit me he needs to visit me you know what Once a year is not enough. I need him three times a week. I need him over at my house to meet all of my needs. In fact, he needs to be able to use his telepathy in order to understand when I'm feeling my need so that he can be there to meet it. And so we often have these expectations that, you know, how often he visits, he needs to be available 24-7. Why does he need to sleep? Why does he need to go to birthday parties? Why does he need a vacation? After all, we need him. Certainly, we expect him to teach on Sundays and maybe many times through the week. And so we often have expectations of our pastor, and we, we, we come to church with certain expectations of him. But have you ever thought that maybe he has expectations from you? that he actually comes to church and he do, ministers to you with certain expectations and responsibilities that he thinks you need to do. Now, I don't know if we ever think about that because we often are coming from our side, we're congregants, and we go, hey, give us what we need. But Paul, in our passage, actually describes four responsibilities that you need to do for your, le- for your leaders Four responsibilities in order for you to be a powerful congregant, a a congregant that's not needy, a congregant that is glorifying to God, and one that will actually bring joy to your pastor so that when he comes to church, he comes with joy and not with grief. And if we want to have a powerful church, and if we want to be powerful individuals with joy and are effective and powerful then we need to fulfill our responsibility as congregants as we come and sit here in the church. And so Paul lays that out for us, and he lays out four expectations for us, four responsibilities. And now listen to this, and I want this to be very care. I just want to make this clear if I haven't made it clear. He's talking to each and one of you as individuals. He addresses the church as all but there is no one here that is in attendance that is not responsible for what Paul lays out. This isn't, well, it's a group thing, and, and if most of the group is doing it, we'll be okay. Paul expects each, and one, each one of you to participate in this. He expects you to take these responsibilities up individually, and you can't turn and say, he's doing it, so I'm okay. And so Paul lays out these responsibilities And he says, there are four responsibilities that you must have. First of all, you must pray for your leaders. You need to be a congregant who is continually praying for the benefit of your pastor. That is what your responsibility is. He says, not only are you to be praying, but then you also need to be trusting in God's faithfulness. In other words, you can't put all of... All of your trust in your pastor, but you need to be trusting in God's faithfulness so that you're not continually having to run to Him for every bit, every problem. And so He says, I want you to be trusting in God's faithfulness. Thirdly, you need to be obeying what you're taught. You need to be obeying what you're taught. This, the church ultimately has a spiritual authority and it's your responsibility as you come and hear the word of God to obey it. And then fourthly, he is simply going to tell you that you need to be growing spiritually. It's your responsibility to be growing spiritually. There's nothing more tragic than someone who comes and sits in the pew week after week and does not grow spiritually. And Paul says, it's your responsibility. And when you do that, you will be an effective, powerful, joyful believer amongst a group of joyful, effective, powerful believers that make up the church of God and you will have a vibrant church. And so this morning, Paul begins simply with this first request, this first responsibility for us. He says, pray for your leaders. Look with me me in verses one and two. He says, finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified just as it did with you, did also with you, so that we will be rescued from perverse and evil men for not all have faith. So Paul says, finally, and when we hear the word finally, we think he's done. Oh, finally, this is where we close up our books. We put our pens in our pockets. We stop listening because he's done. But Paul here is not actually quitting He's really saying on now on another theme, I have something more that I want to speak to you. As for the rest is concerned, I have something to say. And he says, brethren, and again, he calls them, recognizing there's a family responsibility and a family relationship here. He says, pray for us. Pray for us. Now we can't, really see this, but this is the equivalent to when you say to your child, clean your room. Clean your room. It's a command. In other words, Paul is not making this optional for the believer. He says, you must pray for us. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought of that in your life, that you actually have the responsibility before God to pray for your leadership and pray for your pastor. But Paul says, actually, I command you to pray for us. I want, you must pray for us. Now, that can be a little bit surprising, isn't it? After all, Paul has got to be one of the strongest people that we've ever met. I mean, talk about type A. Talk about a guy who seems like he needs no help. Here's a guy who wrote, depending on your view, 12 or 13 books of the New Testament. He wrote more than anybody else. Here's a, here's a man who was used by God to go to the Gentiles. And yet, here is Paul, and he is saying, now listen to this, to a church that is less than 10 months old, to new believers. Some of them have come to salvation even after the beginning of the church. And he turns to them and he says, Pray for us. Pray for us. And Paul recognizes right away the need for God's empowerment in ministry. He knows it's not about his strength. There's nothing in his humanity that can make this happen. It can only be done with divine power. And so he says, pray for me. Now, one thing I want you to take from this, notice what we said about the Thessalonians. Sometimes you say, why should I pray? My prayers are weak. I'm weak, right? I mean, if the pastor prays, those are heavy duty. But when I pray, they're pretty light. And yet Paul is going to new believers and saying, what? Pray. Because the power is not in you. The power is in the one that you pray to. Paul often called for prayer for himself. He often knew his need for prayer. Well Paul says I want you to pray for us but I want you to pray for several requests. This is what I want you to pray for us. He says there's two things that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and it will be glorified. This this is what I desire. This is my heart's desire that as I minister there will be first of all success that the word of the Lord will travel quickly. It will go rapidly. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, this word here is, is actually the Greek word for run. It's probably a metaphor drawn from the track races. Paul likes his athletics. Uh, and so, Paul uses athletic figures in his writing, and he says, pray that the, Lord of, the, Lord, the word of the Lord will go like a strong runner, that it will sprint Maybe Paul has in his mind, because he's an Old Testament scholar, Psalm 147, 15, where it says, says, he sends forth his command to the earth, his word runs swiftly. And so Paul says, here's my desire, I want the word of God to go to run and spread quickly across the world. I want it the the saving, sanctifying, life-giving, life-transforming Word of God to swiftly go across. And I want it to be done, it says, without hindrance. I want God to direct it. I want it to go so that it is not hindered in any way. And Paul, he says was getting at this very idea when in Ephesians 6.19, when he asked for a prayer, he says, pray on my behalf that the utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known the boldness, the mystery of the gospel of which I am what? An ambassador. Paul just wanted his mouth open. He just wanted the gospel to go forth. He wanted the word of God to be spread. He said in Colossians 4.3, Pray that God may open up the door for the word that we may speak forth what? The mystery of Christ. And Paul wants success in ministry, not because he wants a big ministry, but because he wants the word of God to go forth and transform people, transform them in salvation, transform them by sanctifying them by the word of God and the truth. And so like any pastor, like any preacher, he longed for that word to go through the land swiftly. So Paul says, I, I, want, I, want, I want success for the word of God. I want the word of God to, to go forth. I want, it, I want it to go forth freely and not unencumbered. And so as a congregant, we should be praying, Lord, help my pastor as he prepares the word. Give him freedom as he speaks. May the word of God go out unencumbered. May it go forth and may people hear the truth of the word of God. Well, Paul not only wants it to go far and wide, but he has one more request, and he asks that the word of God be glorified. Well, that's pretty simple, right? I want the word of the Lord to be glorified. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to be glorified? Well, it means to be honored or admired for its inherent qualities. In other words, when men see a demonstration of its transforming power in their lives, it's admired. In other words, Paul is praying that the word of God will be believed and received. Richie says this, when the Lord, word of the Lord is glorified, it means that it hidden characters revealed as the word of life, righteousness, and truth. And as soon as the word is accepted by faith, it begins to ordain the life of the believer so that what the apostle wants, this is what the apostle wants and prays for. He wants the word glorified as it is saving and transforming people. We see an example of this in Acts thirteen forty eight. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as been appointed to eternal life, believe. He says, What? They began rejoicing in what? Glorifying the word of the Lord. They accepted it, they received it, and they were transformed by it. And so the simply means the phrase, glory is given to the Lord when people receive his word and believe it. And Paul desired that the, the gospel be honored, that the word of God be honored, that it would, be, it would triumph and be victorious. And the idea here, when he talks about spread and be honored, he doesn't mean isolated victories or single great triumph. He doesn't want just one, but he wants this to be a continually thing. Keep on running and keep on being honored. This is Paul's heart. And this is his desire. And he says, pray for this. Pray for this in my ministry. And he says, just as it did also with you, The the word was received and accepted and spread among you. Here's a parallel event. This is what I want it to look like. I want it to look like what happened when the word of God came to you, Thessalonians, when you were placed face-to-face with the word of God, how you received the word of God. He said in 1 Thessalonians 1.6, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. The Thessalonians had accepted the Word of God. they had been transformed by the Word of God, and it was known by many. He says in First Thessalonians 2:13, "For this reason, we also continually thank God that when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the Word of men, but for what it really is, the Word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe." And so the preaching of the gospel had produced rapid and arresting results. A church was born almost instantaneously, even under persecution. In fact, their reputation was so great that those who traveled from there, that their reputation went beyond their own city. And so Paul says, pray for us. Pray for us. Pray that this will go forth. He says, not only do I want it to spread rapidly and be glorified, he says, I also want, I have one more request, that we'll be rescued from perverse and evil men. In other words, I want the word of God to spread rapidly and glorified, but I also not, don't just want success for the ministry to go, but he says, I also want safety for the messenger. I want safety for the messenger. You need to be praying, not just that the word goes forth, but it, that it will and we see, but for the safety of those who bring it. And it makes sense, doesn't it? You kill the messenger, you kill the what? the message, right? And so he says, I want you to pray for, those, for, for us as we go out in ministry, as we give the word of God. You can't give the gospel if you're dead. You can't share the word of God. I said in jail, but I guess if you've got cellmates, you can still share the gospel. But if you're in solitary, but the idea is, right, if there's no messengers, there's no one to take forth the word of God. And Paul knows that. And Paul says, I'm not just concerned about the the spread of the word of God. I'm also concerned about the safety of those who bring it so that it continue to go forth. And he says, and that we will be rescued from perverse and evil men. In other words, Paul could see as he speaks here that there was trouble on the horizon. There was storm clouds brewing. He could see the trouble coming. And I think even as we look around today, we can see the same thing. We can see that trouble is coming. We see a hostile world that continues to grow even more hostile. And Paul maybe is, is exactly where we're at, where he can see it's coming, but it's not there yet. And we do know in Acts chapter 18, it, it, it arrived, right? And he was thrown out of, of the town, out of Thessalonica. He was made to leave. Sosthenes was, was, was taken and beaten, and Paul needed to go for their safety. And so Paul realizes that perverse men were coming after him, and he asks and he prays, first of all, that they be rescued. Now, the idea here isn't that Paul is saying, guess what, I don't care about my life at all. Sometimes we put Paul on a pedestal, and we almost make him non-human. Paul was never one who just ran to death on purpose. And Paul recognizes death is an enemy, And Paul Paul didn't yes, want to die, but he was willing to die because he loved the Lord Jesus Christ and he loved the gospel. Now, Paul was not one who was about his own safety, and we know that. Paul was not one who continually avoided danger. I'm sure he was not excited about going into danger, yet Paul was one who continued... To go and to share the gospel, to give the word of God to those who needed it. Paul wasn't about self-preservation, and we can even tell by some of the scripture he wrote. And I love this passage, Second Corinthians, chapter eleven, and Paul says, "I speak as if insane. I, I know more." I am also in four more labors and four more imprisonments, beating a number, often in danger of death. Right? Often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. I think that's almost incomprehensible. We tend to read, read over these passages. Paul would have been like a piece of hamburger. And he says, I did that what? Five times. Three times I was beaten with rod, once I was stoned, and three times I was shipwrecked. A day and a night I spent in the deep. So these are the things that went through. And then he says, I've been on frequent journeys in dangers and dangers in rivers and dangers from robbers, dangers from countrymen, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers in the sea, dangers among false brethren. It's kind of crazy when you think about it. Paul was in danger to get to danger. He had to take he had to take the dangerous journey to get to the place where he was going to be in danger. And yet he went. He went anyway. But in his heart for the gospel, he says, I have been in hardship and labor, sleepless nights. There are daily pressures on me. And that is Paul's concern for him, for himself. I will put myself in danger for the gospel's sake. And Paul knows that he cannot continue to do this without the protection of God. And he knows that if God's messengers are taken out, there would be no more spread of the gospel. There would be no more preaching of the word. And so he desires that God would protect him. God uses men to bring the gospel. He uses men to preach the word of God. Faith cometh by hearing in what? The Hearing by the word of God. And how shall they hear without what? A preacher. Matthew 9 38, pray the Lord of the harvest, right, that he might send out laborers. There will be no gospel unless God sent his people out and he uses people to spread the gospel. People will tell you that they're having visions, people will tell you that Christ is appearing to people. Paul says, God's given us the ministry of reconciliation he prays for what? The safety of his ministers because it is human beings that God sends with the gospel and and is heard through the word of God. Scripture says, how beautiful are the feet of them that what? Bring good news. Feet come with people, right? Feet come with people. So Paul says, I want to be rescued. I want to be delivered from these evil and perverse men. So he describes these evil and perverse men. Perverse here has the root meaning of placeless or out of place. It is often applied to objects that are out of place. But here it's applied to people. And so when it's used in an ethical sense, it has the idea of being improper, unbecoming, inappropriate, hence outrageous, monstrous, and unrighteous. So these people are wicked and outrageous and harmful in conduct. And to underscore how dangerous they are, he gives a further description with a further adjective: evil. And this is more than just badness. This isn't just that they're evil and bad, do bad things, but rather they ha- there's an active malice here. It pictures vicious, destructive, the vicious, destructive disposition of their enemies. These people are out to get him. They have active malice to go after him. And so Paul says, "Praise that God will pr- save them and rescue them. Again, it would seem that Paul is pointing out to the Jewish opposition that he had in Corinth, the fanatical Jews who were opposing him. He sees it coming and he prays for deliverance. And then he really gives us the reason why these people are hostile. Why does he need help? He says, not all have faith. Not all have faith. This explains the existence of the enemies. They're hostile due to their lack of faith in the gospel. And there really lies the viciousness of their attack. The truth of the word of God does not warm the heart of the unbeliever. Unless the Holy Spirit is piercing through the heart, they respond in hostility. And when you bring the truth of the word of God and the gospel to them, instead of saying, oh, I'm glad I told you so, they turn on you and try try to gore you. So this faith here is the idea of saving faith. They don't have saving faith. They're not Christians. It's a reminder that though the Thessalonians responded to the gospel, many hadn't. Many rejected the truth that was brought. And So Paul wants him to pray. He wants to pray for the success of the message, for the success of the ministry, and the safety of his ministers. And he wants to be delivered from these men. And so we are to pray for our pastor's Paul says, you must do this. Recognize that your pastors are what? The first in line. They are on the front lines of the spiritual battle. You want a vibrant church. You want to be a vibrant member. You need to be praying what? For your pastor's spiritual well-being. You want to criticize your pastor, and you want to say, well, why isn't the church growing faster, or why isn't this happening? Are you actually praying that the word of God goes forth? Are you praying for his safety, recognizing that there are evil and perverse men who are going to come after him? And it may be from outside the church, but recognize that many of them rise up from within the church. They are wolves in sheep's clothing and they will rise up within and they will try to destroy your pastor. And so you need to pray for his spiritual protection. Pray for his spiritual walk. Pray for wisdom. That's your responsibility as a church member. That's your responsibility to your leaders. And so Paul says, pray, pray, pray for the success and pray for their protection. Well, that's point one. (laughs) We'll go a little quicker through the next ones. Paul says, your next responsibility, not only are you to pray for your leaders, but you are to trust in God's faithfulness. This is his next concern. Not just that they be a praying church, but a trusting church, trusting in God's faithfulness. And he says in verse three, but the Lord is faithful and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. He starts with that little word, but, and there's a contrast being made here and there's even a word play. If we're, if we're looking at it, we can even see it in the English. At the end of verse two, he says, for not all have faith, but God is faithful. God is faithful. And in contrast to those men who lack faith and who are perverse and evil, God is faithful and good. Now, when Paul is writing this letter to Corinth, the church is young. He's given them one letter and he's given them a second one several months later. And, of course, Paul does not have the telephone or the internet where he can get instant updates. He doesn't have Twitter. I think that's something. I'm old. But he doesn't get those instant updates. He doesn't know how they are. Remember, the church is being persecuted. And you can almost hear Paul thinking in his mind, how is my young church going? And as they receive this request from me, they're thinking, Oh, no, if Paul needs help, how are we ever going to make it? If Paul is is struggling and Paul needs prayer, how will we ever make it? Well, Paul answers that here. If these perverse men are coming after Paul and going to take him down, how what chance do we have? Well, Paul knew, no matter what, that God was faithful to him. He had confidence throughout his whole life, his whole ministry. To the end, to the end of Paul's life, he knew about the faithfulness of God. He said in 2 Timothy 4.16, At my first offense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against him, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished. Paul says, God was faithful. He continually was faithful and he was with me. He was able to strengthen me and keep me faithful. And so this church that's under persecution, that is in trouble, can't depend on Paul. Paul's not there. And your pastor can't be there for every time that you run into trouble. He can't anticipate all of your trouble. Can you imagine if you all had a problem today? Where is he going to go? We're going to get a rating system? Like, the reality is, Paul recognized that though God uses your pastor as a means to help you, that ultimately it, it, it has to be a divine enablement that will keep you. Trusting in God in these circumstances. I want you to, to notice, and I always say in Scripture, it's the little words that get us. He says, The Lord is faithful. Is faithful. It doesn't say the Lord was faithful. It doesn't say the Lord will be faithful. It doesn't say that the Lord could be faithful. He says that He is faithful. In other words, we, we theologians talk about God being in the ever-present tense. He's always, always, everything is always present, and God is always actively, presently, always faithful. It is who He is. It is His character. There's never a time that He's not faithful. He continue, continues to be faithful. He will always be faithful. He is always in the state, we could say, of being faithful. That's just the way he exists. It's an attribute of God that's certainly stressed in the Old Testament over and over again. It is continually brought out that his God is faithful, and scriptures replete with affirmation of his faithfulness. So Paul says, God will be faithful. In other words, God will be, continue to, to go according to his word. He will go according to his promises, according to his covenantal promises. He will never not do what he said he will do. So it's great that, God's, that Paul says that God is faithful, but how is he going to be faithful to the Thessalonians? Well, he gives us two ways that God will be faithful to them. He said he will strengthen you and guard you from the evil one. Here's God's faithfulness at work. And again, he says he will will strengthen you. And this speaks of inward stabilization, strengthening in inner security. In other words, God will continue to give you inward strength. He will be working in you and empowering you. He will be building you up in the inner man. He will give you the ability to have peace in your heart and security and to set your belief in the truth of the word of God without budging. He will build you up from the inside. He says, God God is going to give you inward strength. You're going to be not tossed to and fro by wind of doctrine. You're not going to be tossed to and fro by circumstances. You're not going to be like the guy in James who doubted God. He asked for wisdom, and, God, and he doubted, and he's tossed to and fro by the waves of the sea, right? There's no internal structure in water. It just goes everywhere. You've never made water castles, right? And he says, you, you need to be built up in the inner, inner man, Ephesians 3.16 says that he would grant you according to the riches of glory to be strengthened with power through the spirit in the inner man. And there it is. The Holy Spirit is working in the inner man and he is taking the word of God and the truths of God and he is convincing you of the truth of those till they become your convictions and you become settled on them and you know that all the circumstances he brings are for your good, and you're settled because your soul is settled before God. You have the peace of God that passes understanding because he is able to strengthen you and to have the Holy Spirit convince you of the truths of God, and you become settled. He will strengthen you like propping up a building. He will put support around you and strengthen you. Well, not only that, he says, not only will he give you an inner strength, but he will give you outward strengthening. He will protect you from the evil one. Protect conveys a military image implying that there is an armed conflict and he says you are being protected from violent attacks. He says you're protected from the outside. You're protected. Now listen to this. Look where the attacks are coming so that you, you recognize what to expect. The attacks are coming from who? The evil one. All right? He's speaking there of Satan. Now, Satan often uses people to do his bidding, but primarily what he is saying is that you will not be overcome by Satan, by temptation, by deception. All of those things you will not be overcome by because God will strengthen you. Satan can buffet you, he can tempt you, he can never shake you from your faith, he can never shake you from God's purposes in your lives. Satan can come with his fiery darts. He can come seeking who he may devour. But we have nothing to fear. And God will keep us and guard us. He's going to make you strong so that you can stand in all circumstances. He's going to put his hedge of protection around you and guard you from the evil one. So Paul says God is faithful. Unlike those who are trying to destroy you, God will be faithful to to give you inner security and strength and protect you. And so that whatever comes your way, that you will stand strong in obedience to him. Paul says, don't be afraid. God is with you. He will give you the strength to persevere. He will give you the strength to carry on. And he will protect you. God is faithful to his people. He is faithful to his loyal servants. He is faithful to his loyal shepherds and his people. And so Paul says, you need to put your trust in God. You must do the work to get into the word of God so that you know who he is and what he promises you. And the Holy Spirit uses that word so that your trust is in him. And no matter what the circumstances are, whatever takes place, you're secure in him. And you will not be a strong, and joyful, and effective believer and or congregational member until you put your trust in Him, and that your soul rests in His peace. So Paul says you need to pray, you need to trust, and then he says you need to obey what you're taught. You need to obey what you're taught. If you're going to be an effective member of the church, if you're going to be an effective individual, you need to obey what you're taught. He says in verse 4 We have confidence in the Lord concerning you that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. This is the next responsibility obey what you're taught. And again, he assures them that he has confidence in them. It's kind of interesting because he says, you're, you're, you're doing and will continue to do what we command. And he's kind of tactfully recognizing that his readers actually need to be obedient. And he's kind of, in essence, with the compliments, there's pressure, right? It's a nice way to say you need to be obedient, but he says, well, you're, you're doing well and they probably were, and we, most of us probably are, are doing well, but he says, you need to do a little bit better, and you need to continue, don't stop. And so now there's a, there's a we would almost say there's a, there's a standard set that needs to be kept, and he says, you need to keep on being obeying. He says, we have confidence, but again, you'll notice that his confidence here is not in the Thessalonians, he doesn't say, You Thessalonians are made of stern stuff. You guys are just a little extra special, a little bit more spiritual than the rest. And we're, I'm just so delighted that I got to you because now I know you'll do this. I have confidence in you. He doesn't say that. He says, Actually, we have confidence in what? The Lord. Paul says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will continue to do this because I know that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to what? Finish it. And so Paul says, the reason I can have confidence in this is because I know that God saved you and he saved you not to be the same, but to be obedient and to be righteous and to be Christ-like. And I know that he will continue to finish that work because he says, that's what I saved you for. We are to work out what he is working in us, Philippians tells us, right? You can't work out what he's not working in. And Paul says he's working in you to will, both to will and to do his good pleasure. Paul has talked about God's ongoing work in them and within them, the sphere he can rest. He recognizes that God is doing this. God will bring it out. God will make it happen. Now notice this. He says, You are doing what I ask. You are you you need to continue it. He says, What we command. What we command. In other words, you need to be obedient to what we teach. Now, that's kind of interesting because you think about that, and you've, when you first hear that, you've got to say, wow, you're getting kind of big for your britches, aren't you, Paul? I mean, after all, you may be an apostle, but you're still a man, and you're going to come here, and you're going to say, what we command and maybe part of us, when we hear that, we, we, we our flesh just rises up. A command, it's one thing to ask me to do something, but it's another to tell me I have to. Are you kidding me? Who do you think you are? But Paul knows that all the commands that he gives to the Thessalonians come through God. God is the one who is Giving these commands to the Thessalonians, these are paul's ideas Paul, the, Paul is not coming with his own dele, with his own words. Paul knows that he comes with a delegated authority. He knows that it is it is the authority that comes from the Word of God. Remember in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 2, he says, you know what commands we gave you by the authority of what? The Lord Jesus. In other words, when the pastor opens the word of God and he declares its truths, those are the, that's the voice of God and those are the commands that come directly from him. They come with the authority of God. And Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 28, teach them to observe all the things, what? That I have commanded you. Teach them to what? Obey. In other words, hold them to the commandments. And Paul says, whenever I speak or whenever a pastor speaks, he, and he brings the word of God in truth to bear upon you, there's an authority there. And so when we come to church and we hear the pastor speak from the word of God and he brings the word of God to bear on us, we must recognize that the sermon is not a buffet where we get to come and we say, well, I like this truth. Yeah, she needs to hear that, right? I don't like this one so much. I think I'll try a little this one, but that one I'm going to stay away from. When the word of God is brought, it is the authority of the, it comes with the authority of God, and therefore it must be obeyed. And there may be times when you come to church and you hear the pastor gets up and he starts bringing the God of the word of God to bear, and you go, "Boy, is he ever arrogant? He sure sounds confident of himself." I don't know what he did this week. But the reality, now I want you to listen to this. If the pastor does not give you the word of God with the authority that it was written and given and written down, then he is undermining the authority of the word of God. And he is keeping you from hearing the truth of the word of God and he is not holding you and not rightly dividing the word of truth because the word of God comes with authority and it must be preached exactly that way. And so when he opens his mouth and he proclaims the truth of the word of God, he is giving you the voice of God because it is written in Scripture and therefore you must obey. The reality is, when you think about it, what's the proper response to a command? Obedience, isn't it? Obedience. That's the duty of the people. That is the duty of the congregant. This is your responsibility to take the teaching, whether it comes from the pulpit, whether it comes in counseling, whatever that is, you must take the teaching of the word of God and you must, what? Obey it. It's not optional. How tragic is it when we come to church week after week and listen to the word of God rightly divided and we simply ignore it? We simply ignore it. So we are called to be those who what? Obey. Obey the word of God. Obey the instruction. Your pastor's call to exhort, rebuke, instruct. That's his job. And your call is to obey. Well, Paul says, Your responsibilities, pray for your leaders, trust in God's faithfulness, obedience to what is taught. Then he says, You're responsible to grow to spiritual maturity. He says, may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. That's Paul's cry. It's really the cry of any pastor, any man of God who desires to see his congregation grow. He wants them to go into a deeper and deeper relationship with God. That's what he wants to see, spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. And again, how sad is it when this doesn't happen. It's bad enough in churches where the teaching is so shallow and the word of God is not open and exegeted that no one has any nutrients and they can't grow. And they hear men's philosophies and stories. But how even more tragic to sit under the clear teaching of the word of God to reject it and not to grow. And to come to church week after week, week after week, Maybe try to get your spiritual top, your top up while you ignore the word of God and you ignore God for the rest of the week. And so we are called to be those who are growing. He says, Paul says, pray that the Lord would direct, make straight conveys the idea of opening up the way by the removal of obstacles. And he says, I want God to remove every obstacle to your spiritual growth. I want God to be moving in your heart. I want him to be the one who is moving and, and pushing and, and making you grow. I don't want the spiritual growth to come to a halt. I don't want you guys to come to a spot where you plateau and you stop. Hey, I'm satisfied. I've gotten there. I think I'm good. Really, there is no plateauing because the moment you stop growing, you, stop, you start to shrink. You look at a plant, right? You water it. You stop watering it. It doesn't say, hey, I'm, I'm just going to stay the way I am. It starts to shrink. So we must continue to grow. I want you to grow in your hearts and in your inner persons and in your love for God. He says, I want you to grow in the love of God, which can mean you love God or or God loves you. can be the the language is broad here, but I would say this, it probably takes in both ideas. We could say that God's love for us as it is is experienced by us produces a reciprocal response of love in our hearts for him. In other words, as God loved us first, we respond to that in love. And the more we experience God's love, there's a tendency for us to love him more. We love him because he first loved us. We experience this love and it produces a response in love to us for God. And Paul says, the only way that you're going to be able to obey the commandments I gave you is to love God. Right? Only the love for God produce, can, produced and stimulated by our experience of his love will motivate us to joyful obedience to his commands. In other words, the only way you're going to keep the commands is if what, you love God first. The only way you're going to be obedient is if you love God the most. Now that's interesting because so often we spend a lot of time in our life trying to not do bad things. And so we will often, in in, in good intention, we will memorize verses about certain problems and we need to do that. But we spend more time and energy trying not to sin than we do actually in the pursuit of God and, and love for God. And sin is an affection problem. If you love God, you won't sin. That's just the way it is. If you love me, keep my commandments. If you love God, you have to love God more than your sin. And Paul prays, I want God to keep producing love in you so that you will be obedient. I want the love of God to, in you to grow so that as his, the, the love for him grows in you, you become more obedient, you become more Christ-like, and you ultimately what? Be made into the image of our Lord Jesus Christ and so he says i want you to continue to grow i'm asking god to clear any of the obstacles whatever would keep you from growing in the love of god and i might say that you need to remove those obstacles as well is there anything that keeps you from the word of god is there anything that's keeping you from coming back and being fostering your love are you in the word of god are you studying god's attributes are you continuing to ask him to, to wash your mind and change the renewing of the mind so that you now love him more, that you now see his righteousness as good, that you see him as holy and just? So Paul says, foster the love of God. He says, I want God to do this for you. It must ultimately done, be done by the Holy Spirit. It's a fruit of the Spirit but Paul desires them to grow. Then he says this, and I want you to direct your hearts not only into love of God, but into the steadfastness of Christ. What does that mean? The steadfastness of Christ. Well, steadfastness is really another word for endurance, okay? When we talk about endurance, we talk about being strengthened. So you lift weights, right? And you... You lift weights, and the more you lift weights, the stronger you get because you get endurance. In other words, your muscles are bigger and stronger, and they're ready for the next task. And you are stronger than you were before. And Paul says, I want you to get endurance here. I want you to grow spiritually stronger so that you don't fall. And he says, I want you to grow in the endurance of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what does he mean by that? I think we get an example of Christ and his enduring on the cross. He said in Hebrews 12, 2, fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, what? Endured the cross, despising the same shame, sat down at the right hand of God. In other words, Christ is our example of endurance. And he says, I want you to grow in steadfastness like Christ was. I want you to continue to grow in strength so that you are strong. You're not blown around by every wind of doctrine, that you are not weak, that you have strength to stand, to stand against temptation, to stand when trials to come, to not be blown over by suffering and disappointment or sorrow. He says, I want you to grow spiritually stronger and stronger, so that you might, what, be able to endure more difficult challenges. Recognize that God doesn't say he takes you out of trials and troubles, but he does say he will take you through them. James says, I counted all joy, brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces what? Endurance, right? Where you get stronger, your reaction is to go to God to fall on, his, on your face before him, ask for his help. And when endurance is finished, what? Let it have its perfect work that you may be what? Perfect and complete, lacking nothing. This is what Paul desires for them, that they will be strong, vibrant Christians who love God. Paul says, ultimately, that's your responsibility Now, we know that spiritual growth is ultimately through the Holy Spirit, but you are responsible to put yourself in a place so that you grow. And so Paul says, be a spiritually growing member of the church. You're responsible for you. You can't make anybody else grow, but you are responsible to do what is necessary for your growth. So Paul says, you want to be a vibrant, joyful, powerful, effective believer. He says, then fulfill your responsibility as a church member. Be praying for your leaders. You need to be holding them up to the Lord. Trust in God's faithfulness. Put your trust in him. Obey the teaching that you receive because God has given it to you and then grow spiritually. And if you do, if you take up your responsibility, not only will you have the joy of the Lord and the peace of of the Lord guarding your heart, but you will be powerful and effective in God's service. And guess what? You will bring joy to your pastor's heart because he will now be able to do his responsibilities with joy rather than grief. Let's close them. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And again, we thank you for its clarity. We thank you that we can understand it. And so I pray this morning that you would help us take up this challenge that Paul has given to us, that we would take up the responsibilities of congregation members that we we need to be, that we would be marked by prayer, that we would be marked by trust, that we would be marked by obedience and by spiritual growth. I pray that you will use your word as you challenge us this morning to make us more into the image of our Lord Jesus Christ, I pray in your name, amen.